in our current cultural climate, any assertion, any teaching, any suggestion that something is sinful is viewed as puritanical, judgmental, self-righteous, just plain old crazy talk. Now, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration because our culture does believe that some things are still wrong, but to use the term sin, and especially to be told that things are wrong or things are sinful like hating someone, like harboring bitterness in your heart, like gossip, like slander, let alone some of the other activities that our culture has now uh, adopted as normative and regular, right? Uh, To say any of that stuff is sinful or wrong, that's viewed as judgmental, self-righteous, Don't be so judgy, people say. Judgy is not a word. But now it is, right? Don't be so judgy. And the message, though, it it runs deeper. In fact, I saw a a comment uh, rolling around on social media. It was warning people against churches that would make you feel guilt, fear, shame, or self-hatred because of your sin. And to be sure, there are some churches that are unhealthily focused on condemning sin, and they never get to the gospel, they never get to good news, and that's a problem. But that's not what this post was about. This post was about any church that is going to talk about sin and suggest that, now hold your breath here for a second, that you might be a sinner, right? Watch out for churches like that, they were saying. The underlying message goes further, though. Any church, if it's going to be helpful, must compromise her beliefs to be at peace with the culture. If, if, this, if a church is really going to be helpful to the world, then you got to stop telling people that they're sinful, and you just got to kind of, you know, adjust to the times a little bit. Just update the message. Just compromise. And I, I don't know that it's the, the greatest, uh, you know, str- or the greatest, I don't know that these times are the greatest temptation of compromise the church has ever faced, but man, they got to be close. Because there is immense pressure in our culture to compromise the message of the gospel to just get in line with what everybody else feels comfortable with. You know my friend Spurgeon, pastoring back in London in the 1800s, Spurgeon said, Compromise is nothing better than unvarnished rebellion against God, a mockery of his claims, and an insult to his judgment. Spurgeon says, don't buy it. Don't buy that compromise is the way for the church to move forward or compromise is the way for you to move forward. So we could ask, okay, um, whose opinion matters most to me? Who is it, who's, who is it that's going to have influence on me? Who is it who's going to tempt me to compromise my belief, to do what I want to do or to do what they think I should do or just to get in line? And so we're, we're all going to face this temptation. And the fact is, this is not a new struggle In the letter to the church at Thyatira here in Revelation 2, Jesus deals with this very issue. But man, it's the way he deals with it that's so interesting. There's some similarities between the letter to Thyatira and the letter to Pergamum, and we'll we'll touch on those a little bit here. But there is a difference in tone, a significant significant difference in tone here, as Jesus uh, really points out some of the things that are true about himself that really change the way we should respond to temptation. I know you'll be tempted to compromise, right? We all will face it. The question is, how will we respond? So let's get into the details here of uh, this letter and find out what it's all about. So looking in chapter 2 of Revelation, starting there in verse 18, again, Jesus saying through the Spirit to John, write to the angel of the church at Thyatira, 
Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. Okay, and before we get to the rest of it, just a reminder, every one of these letters starts by Jesus identifying a particular aspect of his character that was referenced in the vision that he gave John of himself there in, John, or in Revelation 1, verses 9 to 20. So Jesus revealed himself in, particular, in a particular way to emphasize certain attributes. And so here, notice what he says. He says, thus says, and here he calls himself the Son of God. All right, now I'm going to show you something about uh, Thyatira here, and we'll talk about it, about why this is significant. So let's, let's go here to the videotape. So here's, here's Patmos, where John was in exile. We're getting used to this. And we've had Ephesus, we've had uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. Again, possibly the letters advance in the general postal route that maybe the travel would have gone. You know, that's one uh, possible idea. So here's Thyatira. Uh, not a huge town, especially compared to, to Ephesus and Smyrna. Um, so not a massive town. But the thing about Thyatira was they had a favorite god. Every, every town, right? Every town had their favorite god or goddess in the Greco-Roman pantheon. The favorite in Thyatira was Apollos Tyrmenaeus, okay? He was, like basically all of them, uh, considered to be a son of Zeus. And they honored him. They reverenced him as their highest valued son of Zeus, the son of their god, right? And so they worshiped Apollos as a god, as the son of, you know, the god Zeus. And so Jesus here, with full knowledge of that, that temptation, that people in fire attire on the street, that's who they were going to be worshiping. He says, thus says the real son of God. So right there he's saying, listen, I'm just going to say it very clearly. He says, there's only one. So he says, thus says the actual son of God. And what, what about him is important? It's not just that he's the son of God, but his eyes are like fiery flame. That's, that references the purity of his judgment, right? That he is passionate for what is right. The fire burns, it purifies. And so that's, that's his character. He is the one who, who brings pure judgment. And his feet are like fine bronze, polished bronze, which is a reference to his moral purity. And we talked about that back when we went through chapter 1. But this is uh, Jesus highlighting he's passionate to judge. His judgment is pure. And he is morally right. And, and his, his moral purity you know, fuels his judgment. The, the burnished bronze or the polished bronze imagery is significant for Thyatira because although not a big town, Thyatira had a particular export. They made and exported bronze helmets for the Roman army. They knew all about bronze. And they knew what it took to, to make that bronze shine and to have pure bronze right beyond those helmets so that they, they looked just right. And so here Jesus says, my feet, right, my actions are marked by moral purity. Like, I'm the real deal, Jesus says. He's establishing his authority over not just the church in Thyatira, but the culture. It's interesting. Just out of verse 18, I think we can learn this morning that Jesus alone is the judge of cultures. Jesus alone is the judge of cultures. He is asserting that, that, his, that position, his right and authority to judge here, as he identifies himself in competition with Apollos, he identifies himself as the true son of God, the one who has, has the right uh, to judge with passion and with purity. You know, this is an important truth. Because as we navigate just the reality of life, right, in, in, in our culture, 
there's always going to be that temptation to compromise. And one of the keys, maybe the foundational key to, to make it through those moments of temptation to compromise by saying no to that is recognizing that our culture doesn't belong to Washington, D.C. It doesn't belong to Wall Street. It doesn't belong to Hollywood. It doesn't belong to Las Vegas. It belongs to Jesus. Ultimately, it's his. He is the one who will ultimately render the verdict on all cultures. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, uh, 9 through 11, talking about the, the resurrection of Jesus, and then he says, One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. Because he is the Son of God, because his eyes are like fire, a fiery flame, and because his feet are that fine bronze. So it's his right to judge, his position as judge that's, that's emphasized here. Until the day when Jesus does return, we just need to remember who he is. And it's, honestly, we, honestly we, can, we can forget. So here's how we forget. Just a couple ideas here. You can brainstorm these later. But uh, first of all, we might just need to remember that we are not the ultimate judge of culture. Okay? So uh, we, we don't get to decide ultimately what's right or wrong. We might think we do, and we often might act like we do, right? But we as human beings, we are not qualified to sit in judgment over a culture in an absolute sense. That doesn't mean we shouldn't think critically about our, what our culture is doing and trends. Of course, we want to do that. But ultimately, we are not the judge, and that's important. But it's also important to recognize that the majority is not qualified to judge culture. And that's one I think that we as a, in a democratic uh, society, that we really value the opinion of the majority, but the opinion of the majority does not make it right. And so there's an important recognition here where Jesus says, listen, man, I, I know everybody around you wants to worship Apollos Timaeus, but he says, I'm the son of God. And so you're going to have to decide which way you're going to go. Majority opinion is not ultimately the judge of culture. People will say, you know, you want to be on the right side of history. Have you heard that? You want to be on the right side of history because people that write history books never make mistakes. Okay, what are they saying? They're saying everybody will agree that you were wrong, right? And here's the deal. Everybody might agree that you were wrong. The question is, what does Jesus think? I mean, he, he's, the, he's the son of God. He, he's the one with those fire, the fiery eyes. I mean, that's, he's, his is the opinion that we need to be worried about. And so Thyatira, Thyatira, they were pressured into compromising. And Jesus says, listen, you're going to feel that pressure, but you just got to look to me. It's my opinion that matters most. The financial or educated elite aren't the judge of culture. Again, that's just one of the, the realities of living in a broken world where sometimes we view the wealthiest people as the people who uh, have a right to say what is, you know, what is good for everybody. Um, have you ever listened to Elon Musk talk? Like, that guy, he's a killer businessman, but I don't want him giving me advice. <laughs> You know, you just, it's, just not, it's just not its not his role. He doesn't get to tell us what's right or wrong. No offense to Elon or anybody else who's uh, amassed gajillions. The deal is, often, though, we'll want to please those groups. And maybe it's subconscious, right? So maybe, maybe you're not worried about pleasing the majority of America, but maybe it's the majority of your friends at work or the people in your neighborhood or the kids at school. And their, their opinion matters to you a lot. And if they're all going to worship Apollos to Menaeus, there's going to be a strong urge for you to say, you know, couldn't I just? And it's not going to be like, 
they're not going to say, don't worship Jesus, let's just go do this thing. It's going to be like, hey, you can do both. In fact, honestly, there are a lot of churches that say you can do both. So you should come along. But we can't forget, Jesus is the judge of culture. So what does he think about our culture? Or what does he think about the culture at Thyatira? Watch verse 19 as he gets to the commendation and then the concern. He says, first of all, in verse 19, I know your works. This is the good stuff here. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. This is really cool. Because Jesus says in verse 19, he says, listen, Thyatira, here's what, here's, here's what you're doing great. He says, your love, legit. Keep going, right? Your, your faithfulness, your perseverance, right? That perseverance and faithfulness uh, of, of staying true. He says that so far we're doing okay, although there's a temptation there. We'll talk about that in a minute. Your service, the actual acts of service in sacrificing time and energy to show love to others, that awesome. And your endurance, your perseverance through difficulties, this so far, awesome. In fact, he says, your, your last works are greater than your first. So I can see growth and progress in these areas in your life as a church. So he commends them for those things. He says, this is good, right? These are good things. And keep doing that, right? Whenever he commends a church for these things, he's putting them forward as a model for all of us. So if you want to look at a, just a short list of some of the things that we can work on, love, faithfulness, service, endurance, those are good things. Right? The expression of the heart of faith as we love God and love others, as we're faithful to God and how we act, and as we serve others, serve the Lord, and as we endure difficulties. And you might just ask, how are my last works compared to my first? Like, am I growing? Am I, am I progressing here? So these are the good things. But then along with the good things comes the temptation. Verse 20, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual morality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, so let's just pause right here. So Jezebel, right, that's a, that is a historical person. She was the queen of wife Ahab there in 1 Kings, uh, roughly 16 on to 21, okay? Um, Ahab was a bad king. Jezebel was a worse queen, she influenced Ahab and the northern kingdom of Israel to severe idolatry. She was the one calling the shots when Elijah had the big showdown with the prophets of Baal. You remember that on the top of uh, Mount Carmel? And, you know, it all went down. Well, Jezebel was the problem there. I mean, she was the one pushing the pagan worship agenda. And, and she wasn't saying worship it instead of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's like, let's just tweak it and add this worship to, the God of, to worshiping the God of Israel. So she was, you know, doing this compromise. And a big part of that was... Uh, not only um, sexual immorality, literally, but also in the Old Testament, very often, and in Revelation often, sexual immorality is used as a metaphor for idolatry. Because in many ways, God views himself as the husband of the church. And so to be unfaithful to the husband is to be unfaithful. And so that, that language goes along uh, with the, the general concept of idolatry. Now, sometimes that idolatry is literally immorality, and so we know that's a temptation. But it wasn't just about one expression of sin, right? Physical immorality. He was talking about overall idolatry, worshiping money, worshiping what people think of you. Yes, worshiping physical pleasure or going along with the crowd to participate in these pagan worship events. That's what they were doing with eating the meat sacrificed to idols. We've talked about that in, in recent weeks, but just a reminder that in their culture, so they're worshiping Apollos Timaeus. What did that look like? It was a barbecue, 
Like, that's literally what it was. They would bring the sacrifice to the priest. The priest would offer the sacrifice to Apollos in a special worship moment. They would take most of that meat, give it right back to the community community there. And there in the pagan temple, they would eat a meal. And in the meal, there would be dancing and there would be celebration. And maybe some scandalous things went along with that. And all of that would be to worship Apollos to Menaeus and pray that he would bless their business ventures that, that year. That he would bless their children. That he would bless their families, their nation. Right? All of that. That was, that was the kind of environment it was. And what was happening was someone in the church, apparently it was a woman, was telling people, you know what, everybody's going to worship at Apollos. You know, let's just go along. It's not that big of a deal. And so Jesus says, this is not okay. In fact, it's interesting, the language there. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. You tolerate this false teaching. You see it. You recognize what it is. And, and you know that, listen, Jesus says, I'm the son of God. You know that this is not compatible. You can't worship two sons of God. You're like, there's, just, there's only one real one. So you got to pick. And you're tolerating this teaching that's, that's basically dumbing down the moral purity that's a part of the Christian life. That's dumbing down Jesus' call for us to be distinct and to refuse to worship those false gods. Even in this word of condemnation, Jesus has been gracious. Watch verse 21, how he talks about it. He says, I gave her time to repent, he says. But she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Again, I think there that's a metaphor for idolatry. She doesn't want to repent of the compromise. You know why? Because it's popular. Because it makes everything easier. Because there were financial benefits. If you were in construction and you didn't go to the worship event for the god Apollos, Timaeus, you would not get the jobs because you hadn't done the sacrifice. And so you could lose financially out. You could lose money because you were not participating in the false worship of the, of the day. And while the details, the X's and O's have changed, in some cases, that same financial penalty could be a reality today. You must go out and get drunk with the boss in order to be on his good side, in order to get the promotion. I mean, that is a thing in our culture. And it's just one example of many ways that we might be called to compromise and worship along with everybody else, the gods of our culture. And Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to because there's a lot of of seemingly good things that come from this. Verse 22, he's going to judge this false teacher and those who follow her. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. That Her children are her followers, those who have bought into this teaching. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. You see, here's the thing about Jezebel. This teaching, whatever it was, right, uh, the specifics of it, it was saying, you know what? What everybody thinks of us is so important. We should adjust the message of the gospel and the call to moral purity. We should adjust our standard of holiness because this is what everybody else thinks. This is what the people in town are going to think, right? And so, and it was plausible and it was couched in, in pleasant terms and people were following her. And Jesus says, when I am done judging this false teaching, which you should not tolerate, by the way, you'll know whose opinion really matters. Because Jesus says in verse 23, I will, right? I'm the one who examines minds and hearts. If you're worried about who's going to call the shots, Jesus says, it's not Jezebel, and it's not the local mayor, and it's not the the high priest of Apollos here in, in Thyatira. Jesus says, I'm the one that will examine minds and hearts. 
And yes, I will judge this false teacher and those who follow her, apparently with uh, a literal judgment of sickness or something like that, or maybe even death, as he says in verse 23. So apparently that was the legitimate, legitimate um, you know, judgment that was going to happen. And when that happened, the churches would know Jesus meant what he was talking about, that he wasn't fooling around. What are we supposed to think about all this? Well, here's the calling, right? The calling for us is to conquer the call of compromise, to conquer the call of compromise. At the end of the day, Jesus is saying, say no. Say no, right? It's like that eminent theologian Johnny Cash said. (laughs) I'm not a Johnny Cash fan, okay, because I'm a human being. But like, (laughs) no, listen, but I'm telling you, when the man comes around, I mean, it's a really interesting song, and it's not all great, but there are, there are lines in that song that I think are like, oh, yeah, that's a good one to think, think about. The song is about the return of Jesus, and he's saying when the man comes around, he'll decide. He's the one that's going to make the call. He's the one who judges minds and hearts. Now, I'm not re- recommending Johnny Cash to you, but I am saying this, that Jesus calls us to conquer that temptation to compromise. Don't retreat. Don't retreat. Um, maybe one temptation, we mentioned it last week, but it's worth just reminding ourselves that, that sometimes when we see like, oh, the danger, the, the, there is a temptation to compromise or there is that danger, we might retreat. Like, you know, M. Night's movie, The Village, where it's like we're just going to go and isolate ourselves from everybody and, and we're just going to create our own little subculture. Well, that subculture is still going to be broken. So that's not the answer here. But at the same time, if we're, if we're not retreating from the world, we also have to be careful, and this is the main danger here, is the, the danger of assimilation. You can't just blend in with everybody. We, we can't. It's just not going to work. We can't blend in and continue to pursue holiness the way Jesus calls us to. And so one lie, right, one lie is that uh, love, faithfulness, and service trump sound teaching and purity, and so really, as a church, we need to back off of the emphasis on, on doctrine and moral purity and just kind of generically say we should love people. The church in the English-speaking world, this has been a struggle, um, a, a legitimate major struggle since those late 1700s, where churches were saying, you know what, just back off the doctrine a little bit and just why don't you just relax? And on the one hand, obviously, we want to be loving to people, absolutely. But Jesus says, you can't tolerate Jezebel. You have to be aware of this danger. Now, again, our idols, the idols of our culture, are going to be popularity. Or maybe we could say it this way, movements. Like, that's the thing now, where we have movements. And because of social media, they're really short, like they're short lifespans. But there's a movement. There's a new movement out, a new hashtag that's trending. And there's pressure on the church to conform to what the world is saying is important right now. This movement, this is what's urgent at the moment. And there are legitimate problems that those movements might actually expose that we should think carefully about. Absolutely. But again, we don't take our marching orders from the culture. And if everybody's worshiping what's most popular in social media or what's, what's everybody's talking about the most, we might have to say, you know what, hold on. Maybe that's not the primary thing I need to be worried about right now. Maybe Jesus calls me to something different. Again, we worship pleasure. We worship power. We worship money. Those aren't new gods. They just come in different forms. But be careful that you're not blending in with the culture. I thought of a couple examples here. It might come, come at us in different ways or different forms. 
the progressive church says love trumps doctrine, right? That's the example. So love trumps doctrine. So um, you just have to, you have to basically edit your doctrine to be a little bit more friendly to the world or a lot more friendly to the world and just, just love. But in this case, um, we have to have our cake and eat it too. We have to say, yes, we're going to love God and we're going to love people. But is it really love to tolerate compromise and idolatry? No, of course not. A second, uh, a second example, though, might be a church where they emphasize doctrine to the point that they exclude love. And again, if you really believe the truth, you'll understand that love is a fundamental component of our lives as believers. Love God, love people. So, it's, again, we have to have our cake and eat it too. But there are churches where they literally make hate signs, signs that announce to people how much God hates them, right? And they'll make those signs and will march around, and that's their message. And, again, it's not the whole story. It's a false gospel. It's only half the story. It's actually no gospel, right? It's just only condemnation. And so even from a more, like an ultra-conservative context, you could get this pressure to worship the God of the culture, which is just their denomination, their movement, whatever it might be. So even a subculture could pressure us to compromise. Jesus says, don't tolerate it. Don't give in. You got to hold the line, Jesus says. There's only one Son of God. The argument that Satan will use is he'll say, ah, but you have to blank to be accepted. You have to blank to succeed. You have to blank in order to to prosper in this world. So the church is going to be effective. It has to change its view on gender, sexuality, marriage. The church is going to succeed. If you're going to succeed, you've got to change your attitude towards drunkenness or drug use. You've got to do that in order to succeed. You've got to do that in order to reach the culture. And there were people not outside the church. There were people inside the church saying, this is what needs to happen. And Jesus says, let's call it what it is. That's, a, that's Jezebel. So just if, if you're like in the family building stage of your life and you guys are having girls, you don't want to name your girl Jezebel. Okay? Like I'm just going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf here. You do not want to name your girl Jezebel. This is not a positive connotation. Okay? This is someone to be avoided because they are a cancer in the church. That's what Jesus says. Because they are arguing that idolatry isn't that big of a deal. This is alive and well today. And you'll read it in books sold on Christian websites. Jesus is the one who knows. He's the one who's examining minds and hearts. You just need to ask this morning, wait a minute. What does Jesus find when he examines my mind and my heart? Where am I tempted to compromise? And the message here is not to just say, woe is me, I've blown it, but to say, Jesus, you call me to something different. And so I can confess that compromise. I've been compromising with sexual purity. I've been compromising with drunkenness. I've been compromising with uh, worshiping the God of approval on social media. Lord, I've been compromising by obsessing over my body image. Lord, I've been, I've been compromising over my love for money and my value of my career over my family and, and over your kingdom. Like you can say, Lord, I'm, I've compromised in these areas and I repent and I know that I'm forgiven because of what you've done for me on the cross. So Lord, help me. Help me to change. Help me to make different decisions. If we say no to the culture, what are we saying yes to? Well, we're saying yes to Jesus. Watch verse 25, or excuse me, 24. 
He goes on, he says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Okay, so hold on right there. That's, what's, what? <laughs> he says, okay, those of you who haven't bought the lie of Jezebel, which apparently they were calling, now listen, they weren't calling them the secrets of Satan because nobody's buying that in a church, right? So probably John here, uh, the spirit through John is just kind of like, you know, it's a little, little wink, you know, like they probably called them what? The secrets of God. L- listen, the temptation to compromise that's going to come at you, it's not going to be in a book called Satan Calling, right? It's not going to, it's going to, they're going to, it's going to be called something else. It's going to be packaged in a way that sounds compatible with the Christian life. But what it is, it's actually the secrets of Satan. It's not the secrets of God. It's the secrets of Satan. So, you know, he's exposing here. Don't, don't just believe everything you read on the internet. Like, no, you can't do that. You have to discern because there's only one son of God. So he says, okay, so many of you, maybe even most of you haven't bought into that. Awesome. Good job. I'm not putting any other burden on you. Verse 25, what? Only hold on to what you have until I come. Because <laughs> the man's coming. Right? Jesus says, hold on. Hold on to what you have until I come. Persevere. Endure. You cling to this gospel. You don't compromise. Verse 26, there are benefits that come with the perseverance of the saints. The one who conquers, right, conquers what? The temptation to compromise. And who keeps my works, practical life change in following Jesus, right? So the one who does that to the end, who makes it to the end of the race, I will give him authority over the nations. Wait, what? It's not just that Jesus is the judge of all cultures, but Jesus actually will commission his church to judge the world. When he returns, this is what he's going to do. And so this is powerful because Jesus is saying, okay, I'm the one that judges cultures and I will use you to exert my authority. All the more reason for you to stay pure and to follow me. All the more reason for you to persevere to the end. And then he quotes from Psalm 2 which is such, it's a powerful and beautiful psalm that uh, asserts the sovereignty of God in contrast to the uh, uh, supposed sovereignty of nations, right? And so the Lord, in that psalm, he exalts the Messiah, watch verse 27, and he will rule them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. It's talking about the enemies of God and the nations there and how the Messiah will rule. But here Jesus connects this to us as the church and he says, I will rule and I will rule through you. You will be my agents to rule. And that will happen immediately upon his return, and it will last forever. Watch in verse 28. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Okay, what's, what's the morning star reference here? In the Roman military, they had this belief, this idea, that, uh, that Venus, the planet Venus, when they saw it in the sky, it was the first visible star. Okay, uh, they call it a star, right? It was the first visible star. Well, because it was the first visible star, to them it signified sovereignty over everything, like sovereignty over the heavens. So this idea of sovereignty was apparently, you know, uh, connected to what they would have called the morning star. And so that's probably the imagery that's, that's being used here. That, that the Father has given the Son the right to sovereignty over the universe, and the Son will then deputize the church to exercise his reign. Not our agenda, his agenda. Not our wisdom, his wisdom. But that's what is coming. And so in the meantime, Jesus says, you got to stick with me. 
And then in verse 29, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. You know why that tag's included in every letter? Because the temptations that these churches were facing are the same kinds of temptations that we face. And so he says, if the shoe fits, wear it. Yep. If you have ears to hear, heed this message, the temptation to compromise. It's ever-present. What's the takeaway here? Well, keep Jesus first. Keep Jesus first. Tom Schreiner said, and I thought this was really helpful, he said, true love guards the supremacy of God in all things and doesn't countenance the violation of moral norms. True love honors or guards the supremacy of God in all things. And true love doesn't even consider compromise. He says, listen, this, this is what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to exalt God in all things, not the opinion of the majority, not my own opinion, not what everybody's saying at school, not what the politicians want. He says, I'm exalting Jesus. And so exalting God in all things means I say, I will stay firm and I will follow him even when it looks weird to my neighbors. Again, we live in, a, we live in an age where, um, especially when it comes to, to actual like physical immorality, where the, the calling of God to pursue holiness and how we physically treat one another in romantic relationships, it's just crazy talk. It seems so crazy to our culture now. And you could say, you could find Christians who would argue that, you know what, what the Bible says about that, what the Bible says about other things, you know, it's really not that binding. Like, you can just make an adjustment here or there. It's okay. Isn't God all about grace? And Jesus says, absolutely, I'm all about grace. Grace to equip you to live a distinct life. Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Paul says, no. No way, Romans 6.1. May it never be. We should never do that. So keep Jesus first. Again, it is not, it's not a lack of love to pursue holiness. That's a false, uh, you know, kind of a, a false dichotomy set up there. Or we could think of, think of it this way. Don't mute your witness. You ever, you ever accidentally mute the TV or your Zoom call? You all have muted your Zoom calls on accident. Okay, that's, that's everybody's done it, right? Yeah, ever accidentally mute your TV? They sell now these things you can buy or that you plug into your computer or whatever. That It's like a big red mute button, and it's either green for on or red for off. And it's for some of us... <laughs> who have a hard time finding that mute button, right? Who just, we can't figure out how to unmute. So it's like, this is the mute button, right? When we compromise, when we tolerate Jezebels, we mute our witness. What does that mean? That means we fail to be distinct. Now listen, historically, when you look at churches who say we should love the world, absolutely, but then they say we should love the world and let the teaching go, let the moral purity go, just love the world. When churches have that message, those churches historically, what do they do? They die out. All, every time. They numerically will die out. It's just a matter of generations. Why? Because they fail to be distinct. There's no distinction from that church than the local social club. There, there's, no, there's no reason, compelling reason, to, to center our lives around God when there's nothing different about us than our neighbors. There's no compelling witness there. The witness has been muted because idolatry is being tolerated and even promoted. So do you realize 
that if you're too camouflaged as a believer, you will miss opportunities to show the world what Christianity is all about. There are, there are people that are in your world, your circle of influence, that frankly, I could never get to spend time with. That other uh, Christian leaders could never spend time with, but they'll spend time with you. And if you look and sound like every other American, especially in making those compromises in your pursuit of holiness, they will never think, wow, there's something different about that person that I need to dig into a little bit. We have a compelling witness as believers. The question is, have we muted it by tolerating compromise and tolerating Jezebel? So what should we do? Well, first of all, we're going to refuse to compromise our beliefs and our behavior. Okay? Refuse to compromise on your beliefs and behavior. Again, I just would say we just have to hold the line, right? We're not going to be that church that values doctrine and then hates people. No way. That is not okay. But we're not going to be the church that says, oh, we're going to love people and purity doesn't matter and doctrine doesn't matter. No way. We're going to hold that line, right? We're going to work hard to try to hold that line. And to receive correction when we need to, right? When we're veering one way or the other. So we're going to refuse to compromise our beliefs, but then especially our behavior, and again, I just would ask you to maybe consider to say, Lord, show me, are there areas in my life where I am compromising? Do I need to clean up what I've been watching on Netflix? Do I need to clean up my language at work? Do I need to clean up how I'm treating this person at school, right? Do I need to clean up what I'm pursuing in my free time? Have we bought the lie? Well, it's not that big of a deal. Remember, Jesus judges the heart and the mind, and he calls us to something different and something better. So refuse to compromise beliefs and behavior, but also commit to stand out and suffer if necessary. We have to commit to stand out and suffer if necessary. I think I said it last week, I don't remember, but we're going to have to be willing to be weird, right? It's just part of it. And not intentionally weird for no reason, okay? That's a disease, that's a sickness, okay? We've got to get, take care of that, right? But we're talking about being weird by living distinctly Christian lives, so that when everybody else is talking about that show that everybody's been watching, and they're like, hey, what do you think? You're like, well, I haven't actually watched it. They go, what? How come you're not watching it? And it's not, oh, I just haven't had time yet. It's that, you know, frankly, there are things in there that I know that I just don't want to be entertained by because I follow Jesus. And you're going to get that look like you have a third eye, right? That you have a horn growing out of the side of your head. And guess what? That's Okay. Everybody's going to worship Apollos Timaeus. You're not coming? No, I'm not coming. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. That's why. And I love you, man. And I'll be here when you get back. And I'll help you with your lawn. And I'll help you with your kids and whatever else you need help with. But I am not going into that temple. There's a line that I'm not going to cross. We commit to stand out and we commit to suffer if necessary. This reality is laced through all of these letters that it may come down to, I willingly embrace suffering, persecution, because of what my culture believes is okay. And again, you're not going to get thrown in jail, most likely, but you are going to face some pushback from people. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to face that pushback. So this is, this is actually a call to basically, again, to conquer the call compromise. This is a, this is a calling of Jesus to kind of gear up a little bit and say, okay, I need to prepare myself I need to be ready to say no and to not tolerate Jezebel, but instead to do something different, to navigate through these morally ambiguous times, right? I'm going to navigate this. How am I going to do that? I'm going to do it by committing to Christ. 
I'm ready to stand out and I'm ready to, st- to suffer if necessary. If we will do that, we'll conquer that call to compromise. I think it was in the 1200s when in Europe, the discovery of the, a compass, they, you know, they, the compass has been around for a long time, but it was basically in the 1200s in Europe when they finally figured out how to actually use a compass for navigation, especially navigation at sea. And it transformed navigation at sea because before they had a compass, right, that, that would be able to point them uh, north they, uh, and so they could find their bearings, they were relying on what? The stars or the sun to navigate. Here's the problem. It's not sunny every day, Right? And often in, sea, in uh, seafaring travel, that uh, you have to navigate at night, right? And if it's a cloudy night, you got nothing to go by, right? And it's interesting. Listen to the way this is. Uh, this is from this is from the 1200s. Uh, a an English scientist describing the transformation that happened because they figured out how to use a compass. All right, listen to this. He says the sailors, when in cloudy weather, they can no longer profit by light of the sun or when the world is wrapped up in darkness and shades of night, and they are ignorant as to where their ship is directed. He might as well have been using that as a metaphor for the moral lostness of our age. He's talking about it literally, but think about that language. When we no longer profit by the light of the sun, and when the world is wrapped up in darkness, wrapped up in the darkness of shades of night. I mean, that's where we are. Our culture doesn't know it's right from its left morally speaking. They're ignorant to where their ship is pointed. They don't know where they're going. We don't look at them with judgment. We look at them with compassion. We also look at them with a conviction that we have a better way. He goes on to say they would attach the magnet to the needle. The needle would then point and, and it would look in the direction that they needed to go. They would be able to figure it out at this point, right? The needle would point, and that would give them their direction, give them their bearing. Listen, we have a compass. It's the Word of God. And Jesus is our true north. He's our orienting point. Right now, we know where we're headed. And yes, the fog is dense. And some days, man, they are really cloudy nights. And we are tempted to give in. And we are tempted to just go with the flow. We are tempted to engage in that sinful attitude, activity, whatever. But by God's grace, we are equipped to conquer the call compromise. We're equipped to hold on to Christ and to move forward with that faith-driven perseverance. What should we do? (laughs) Well, love, be faithful, serve, and endure, and say no to compromise. Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us as we pursue those ends. Lord, we thank you so much for this particular portion of Scripture which just reminds us of your sovereignty over all cultures. And Lord, it's a sobering reminder of also the temptation to compromise, to give in to the idolatry of our age. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us to be savvy, wise, discerning as to where we are tempted to compromise. Lord, protect us from pride, from looking at the culture around us and thinking that we are superior, Lord. We know that's not true. But we do know, Lord, that you've called us to a distinct way of living, to be transformed by the gospel. And Lord, even if perhaps there are some who've never trusted in you, that Lord, we pray and ask that today would be the day when they move out of the fog of darkness and into the light, to be able to see where the ship is going, 
and to follow you, Lord, to follow your direction by faith and to experience true forgiveness, the removal of shame and guilt. Lord, we ask that you would do that work today. And Lord, for all of us, we we face increasingly difficult circumstances in a culture that continues to flounder morally, just doesn't have any basis. And so, Lord, we ask for help, that we would live distinctly Christian lives, that we would say no to compromise, that we wouldn't tolerate an adjustment of the gospel to, to placate the world, but instead, Lord, we would pursue you with love, with faithfulness, Lord, in service and in endurance. And we can't do that without your help, your blessing, your guidance, Lord, without your spirit leading us. And so we ask for that help right now, even as we go today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, the Son of God. Amen.